Hey, Mike. Hey, Colin. Welcome to Divergent Opinions, episode 14, after a uh, slight hiatus. Yeah, we've been busy. I've been busy. We've We've both been been busy. busy. Yeah. Yeah. It's like we got busy writing software and stuff. That's pretty good. We got through 13 episodes before we uh, slacked off. That's pretty good for a podcast. That's not too bad, yeah. We'll try. We could have been forgiven for just stopping right there. Yeah. But we're not. No, we're back. Not going to talk about Gamma this week, though, because we've both been too busy to research it. Right. And we don't want to put together a coherent plan. Yeah. So uh, we'll just talk about some other stuff. But someday, it'll be our white whale. I think it's, yeah, I think it's the industry's white whale in some ways. Yeah, kind of. I'll ask Siri to remind me to uh, put a plan for Gamma. Yeah, so that's the big news this week. Colin has a girlfriend. Yeah. Her name is Siri. Um, she doesn't do most of the things I tell her, but, uh, you know, she's still pretty cool. I bet I could have come up with a better joke there, but, uh, probably. you know, just with the lack of podcasting, I've sort of fallen out of uh, the habits. My normal witty self. At least you were misogynistic. That's half of the goal of any good joke. <laughs> What's the other half? And maybe being funny. Oh, okay. I don't know. Wow. Pissing off the other 50% of the world. Yeah. I was going to go with racist, but. Mm, there's so much overlap then. Yeah, that's true. Uh, iPhone 4S. Got one yesterday. It's pretty cool. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, mostly identical to the old iPhone. But uh, Siri. Siri has a lot of potential. Yeah, so, I mean, that, yeah, I don't know what to say about that. Um, it looks cool. It looks like it's going somewhere. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the cool yeah. thing about Siri is that, well, one of the cool things is because it's running in the cloud, it can have some continual iteration, and I think that it'll get better, one, as, you know, they've got millions of people using it as of yesterday, um, and two, just as the research improves, but it's already, you know, pretty impressive um and there are certainly some tasks that it can do faster than you can do manually which is really cool in terms of you know setting a reminder setting an alarm that you know takes a bunch of taps um being able to say you know wake me up at eight eight o'clock tomorrow and you're done is is pretty cool um or you know remind me to you know take out the trash when i leave the house or whatever um you know it it works it works surprisingly well the speech recognition is surprisingly good um, and you know where it'll really become more powerful is as they tie it into more and more services and data sources. See, I've got an idea here. It's a little hard to bootstrap up to this, but brilliant app idea. It's a thing where you would, so so it used to be that you would go out to the bar and hang out with your friends and get a little drunk, and then people would start having arguments that weren't entirely. Yeah, that were non-resolvable while in the bar, which meant it could take a long time and you could right. actually this was sort of and converse. And what BS. made Mike's life worth living for, for many, many years up until 2007. Exactly. And then the iPhone comes out and everybody is like, well, let me Google that. Oh, one of you is right. The other is wrong. And then it's like, okay, well, that was fun. What do you want to talk about now? And then that's how the entire night progressed, one thing after another. So what they need to make now is an app where you can just leave your phone on the table and the entire time, whenever someone makes any sort of assertion, it'll just go ding if it's right or if it's wrong. And then you don't even need to talk to your friends anymore. That would be nice. Unless it's an entirely factual conversation. That's good. Yeah. I'd be all for that. Yeah. Let's do it. All right. Yeah, that sounds like that would win us a lot of new friends and um, people to influence. Uh, other than that, the new phone is faster and the camera is very nice. But it is yeah. So uh, that's the one thing that we can maybe get away with talking about here: the camera. The camera, yeah, is is pretty impressive. I mean, uh, I've only taken a few shots with it. Obviously, the I think for me the most the nicest thing is just how fast it starts. Obviously, they put a lot of effort into. Um, the speed with which they either power up the sensor or, or whatever it is that sometimes makes the old iPhones just sit for what feels like ages at the sort of closed shutter screen. Um, right. It seems and really... So that's markedly better. 
markedly and really consistent i think that's the biggest thing because with my old iphone sometimes it would be instant you know and sometimes it would just be you know you'd sit there thinking it was hung or something and with this it's just every time you tap it camera opens okay let's do it open up your okay i'm I'm holding my four here okay okay when i'm gonna count to three and then click camera and say dot you know let us know when yours is up and ready to take a picture okay one two three done done yeah yeah i mean i mean you know when you consider the times at which you're actually taking pictures that's meaningful yeah no that's like almost twice as fast and and just to have it be consistent is is nice so nice um and and you know gorgeous photos um it really you know i i sold my uh pocket still camera to pay for my new iphone and i don't feel any regret about that um i think my old my pocket camera might have been 10 or 12 megapixel and this is only eight but i never carried that one that camera around because it was bulky and and who wants to carry a camera Um, so minus six the four five five okay so you get a few more megapixels which i'm not sure matters anymore no i think the more important thing is the new optics and the new sensor new dsp yeah hmm. um picture that the pictures look you know gorgeous and and so i'm i'm excited to have that um and you know i feel like i don't need any sort of other digital camera again unless i decide to get back into the dslr world or someday convince you to give me one of yours uh although yeah last night we went to a picnic outside at night and I, you know, I have the Canon T2i, and so I'm kind of used to shooting with it. But uh, Rebecca, the girlfriend, brought her 3i, which is, you know, I'm assuming identical internally. You know? Yeah. There are a few changes with, like, you know, how easy it is to break the screen off of it, things like that. <laughs> I've been at it. But other than that, I'm not sure what, what really changed. But I was dumbfounded how good. You know, she would, like, take out the thing with, you know, it's just a bunch of people sitting around at tables with candles or, you know, little LED lights or something. And I was like, that, you know, that's not going to work. And she's like, look at the picture. It was, it worked perfectly. Yeah. No, honestly, I mean, I I had a um, Rebel XT for years, which was the second iteration of the digital Rebel. Um, And... I loved that camera. It, you know, finally wore out after, I don't know, six or seven years of traveling around the world and everything. And I didn't at the time feel like investing the money in a new body and, and the requisite lens upgrades and things. But I definitely, I, I miss that part of my life. Um, like I miss going out intentionally to shoot nice photographs. Um, you know, I never carried the rebel around for snapshots, but right. it, it was, it was, you know, great to be able to, shoot intending to shoot pretty things and not just capture an event capture a moment um, right and I mean, so it's, it's different it's, you know uh, yeah someday i'd love to get a get another dslr and yeah people buy dslrs now for the purpose it's like buying a moleskin yeah like it's you don't buy the moleskin because you're like i really want to take notes you know but you buy it because you're like you know i want to like sit down and have a coffee and write right and, you know in the same way that like Posted notes are much better for like, oh, look, I need to write something down. But, you know, they're ubiquitous. Yeah. And that's what's great about the iPhone. And it's nice that it's, you know, it looks really good. And we've got all that latitude to play with when we fuck our pictures up with whatever the app of the week is. And I haven't uh, I haven't shot too much video with it yet, but you know I guess moving up to 1080p is good. Um, You know, one one weird thing in this new iPhone iOS 5 world which was also released this week is that there's there's not a clear way to deal with the videos that you capture on your device you know um, most things sync wirelessly to iTunes now and photos sync via photo stream but as far as I can tell the only way to get raw videos straight off the device without like emailing them to yourself is to plug in via USB uh, which is a little strange. It feels like it's a, you know, a bit of an oversight. Um, but maybe they sort of figure you're going to send them right to YouTube or something from your, from your device. Right. I mean, they have in the video thing, they have like a, they got the little arrow. Right. You can email and you can go to a couple of sites, right? Yeah. You can go to, you know, YouTube and you can send it via MMS and do some of those things. But it just seems odd that you, you know, the raw files don't at, at a minimum come off wirelessly. I guess, I don't, I don't where know where would they go. 
Well, and that's... I mean, I guess they could just dump them in your movies folder. And they may do that sooner or later. Well, but when you connect via... Yeah, I mean, I guess I get I get why they don't want to put them in a photo stream, um, just in terms of bandwidth and, and utilization. Um, but it'd be nice if there was a way to pull them off without having to plug the phone in, because there's really no other reason to plug the phone into your computer ever anymore. Right. Um, but I don't. I always forget that the camera even shoots video. So. <laughs> yeah. Where do you shoot? So you shoot video in the camera. Yeah. You just looking at my thing it. now. Where do you? And then videos is where you see them, or photos. F- photos, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah again that's not confusing yeah yeah it is photos is where you see your videos and videos is where you see other people's videos so right. yeah and there's obviously some things that could be streamlined here yeah but and hopefully that. as people shoot more video they'll get that yeah. nailed down yeah. i mean i guess the other option is if you're going to be i mean i guess the big difference is photos sort of stand on their own and videos don't you know, people, I guess some people shoot a video and then are just done with it, but most people go somewhere with it after that. Mm, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think it really depends on the sort of, I don't know, type because of person. Because if you, or type if of you shoot a video encounter. on your phone and then bring it into iMovie, it'll automatically iCloud over to iMovie on your computer. Will it? Does an iCloud do that? I don't know. Does iMovie support iCloud? I don't think it does. Oh. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I can, I understand why they're scared of the data, but it's not that much data. Right. I don't know. They, they've got a big building. It's, you can fit a lot of data in it. Yeah. And what's the, let's see, uh, how many bits can you fit into a million square feet? Lots. They should hire those guys who do that. What's the other backup system? Backblaze? Are they the ones who stick the drives just like in boxes? Yeah, basically. Oh, yeah, they should see how many drives they could stack into a room. It's quite a few. It's a pretty good number, I think. You should probably have halls to get to the drives to replace them. That'll cut down on your your density. Yeah. Stupid people. Yeah. So what else is new? Um, let's see. So Adobe Max happened this week. Yeah. A lot of cool stuff. Or, or, are we going to... Oh. We need to talk about Steve. I guess. On Apple. Yeah, I mean, you know, Steve died. It's incredibly sad. Yeah. Um, the whole world sort of, well, not the whole world. I mean, there are a lot of people with bigger problems than Steve dying, but a surprising number of people in the world, I think, felt a real sense of loss and this sense of, you know, what do we do now? Who's gonna Who's gonna push us forward now? Um, yeah, I have such mixed feelings about this. I don't. I mean. It's sad at a slightly higher level than, you know, a standard human death. But I don't, I don't know. I can't rend as many garments as most people have. Can you gnash as many teeth? Mm, I've already got one tooth missing, so probably not. Um, you know, I think I don't for, have my wisdom teeth either. For so. me, when I when Steve resigned, you know, six weeks ago or two months ago, I guess now, for me, I guess I sort of comforted myself in the knowledge that if Apple screwed up too badly, you know, he was out there to you know make phone calls and you know haul people to the carpet. And so I think I worry a little bit more about Apple now with him gone. Um, I think that you know it's a question of how they're going to handle this going forward and you know, handle disputes and things like that. But, uh, you know, I also just, I think that the, you know, a singular vision has done the industry uh, well over the last 10, 15 years. And so it's, you know, I don't see anyone who has that sort of vision and, and the sort of personality to present it, um, which is unfortunate. I mean, there's still going to be lots of cool stuff happening, but, you know, in the same way that there was, there was lots of stuff happening in the tablet space before the iPad, but the iPad mattered, I think, um, you know. Yeah, it's tough. It's a little, I mean, it seems like, I guess I just, as much as the market's horrible, at least for the invention of products and services, it seems like, 
you know, as long as we can keep the playing field relatively open and fair, if any one company or any one industry drops the ball enough, someone should be able to pick it up. I mean, Apple's done success, done really well in all these industries because no one else was doing well. You know, I don't think Apple would have, you know, the iPhone wouldn't be success. Apple wouldn't even have an iPhone if someone else had done a good one before that. Right. And likewise, I don't, I, you know, but I mean, a lot of people seem to think that the, the antecedent's true, which is if Apple hadn't done it, no one else would have. And I'm not sure I agree with that. I, you know, I think with the iPhone in particular, even more than the iPad, I think they did just manage. I, th- I think that it would have happened, but I think they, you know, jumped us forward five years. Yeah, perhaps. Because it, the, uh-huh. the, the mobile phone market in particular was so evolutionary in terms of yeah. how a product was developing. And even look at, you know, look at the first Android phone, the um, the G1, which was in the development phase before the iPhone launched. I, 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 at least the, the preliminary versions of it were, before, and it even went through a lot of revisions before release, but it was, you know, much more like an old-fashioned smartphone, an old, you know, Nokia E62 or something running a, a OS that happened to be interesting. And, and, you know, look then where the next big android phone went was you know this huge jump forward and so i think you know they definitely pushed us forward so yeah i just have a hard time balancing that with the idea you know so if you know i believe this that the market will find you know that like anyone who sits in their laurels long enough will get beat up and for that to be true it can't be prohibitively expensive to enter right or to innovate and that's where the sort of flip side of Apple's dominance has become problematic to me. You know, if if the innovation, you know, so so let's take the 4S. You know, arguably the biggest innovation with it is Siri. Yeah. Which is something Apple bought. Which they bought because someone had proved the technology and, and made it. And they were, you know, they did that despite the risks of building, you know, an incredibly large product on, you know, what can be sort of a shaky platform to target as a, you know, first time developer. You know, like it had those people been like, you know, it's tough to say, you know, it's tough to target, you know, that must have been a ton of man hours of work. And, you know, I would, I doubt it would have gotten made for Android because Android already has, you know, at least a subset of that functionality. It was only going to get done if it was for the iPhone. And the iPhone, you know, it's tough to spend a lot of time. I mean, I don't, we've, I've made a conscious decision not to make apps in the App Store just because it's tough that, you know, if your app has to be in the App Store and you run afoul of something with Apple, you know, you just built a very expensive demo project that you can show to all your friends on your phone. Right. And so I don't know. I mean, you know, they're really on both sides of this. They've they've done really well for themselves and for the industry, but they're also, I think, you know, I think it's a short-sighted gain for the industry that in the longer term especially if they stop innovating at the speed they are, can will negatively affect everyone. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And I just, you know, it'll be really interesting to watch um, how, Apple, how Apple handles things and how the industry reacts. And, um, you know, obviously Apple's got an impossible standard at this point is everything they release from this point on will be critiqued in the, the sense of assuming that, Steve was invincible and magical and all-knowing. And so, you know, a single pixel out of place will be held through the lens of, well, if Steve was around, that wouldn't have happened. When, of course, you know, Apple shipped plenty of crap under Steve. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's it's an impossible solution, a situation for Apple. I just hope that, you know, in broad strokes, um, you know, they can keep doing what the whole company has been doing for 
10 years, which is, you know, in general, getting things yeah. right and, and moving forward and, you know, making hard decisions and um, not sort of resting in their, on their success. Right. And the nice thing is, you know, the Mac developer community has really adopted the Apple 2.0 aesthetic. You know, there are a lot of companies out there who are very design driven and who have, you know, really, you know, good sense of making, you know, user centric products. Yeah. In a way that they, you know, that Apple didn't do before the iMac, even after, you know, before, I don't know, 10.3. Yeah. So, so that's good. And I think that will, you know, assuming that they're allowed to sort of flourish, you know, I think we'll get a couple decent sized indie companies out of this that can push stuff along. Yeah. Well, here's hoping. Yeah. Here's hoping we're one of them. Exactly. Uh, so Adobe Max, jumping yes. topics, um, you know, continuing our theme of Adobe buying PhD research for reasons. They had an event where they were, this is sort of their annual developer conference or, or user conference, right? Right. Um, and they showed off a few cool things. Yeah, pick, they showed off one. a lot of like research level sort of integration testing things with i think they call them sneak peeks which yeah. actually means something in there like that that is a class of product right so they show off things that they're working you know some of them were beta things that they've sort of released to the end users and some of them are sort of you know we've got this technology working we're tweaking it it's probably gonna end up in the next version of cs we're going to show it to you now. And the two that I saw that were really interesting is one is um, this has been sort of a solvable problem for a year, a couple of years now of reverse Gaussian. The idea is you can any blur, assuming it is a mathematical blur, um, can be reversed um, within the limits of sort of dithering and bit depth of your image. So you're obviously going to lose stuff to rounding errors and quantization. But if you take an image and you go into Photoshop and add a Gaussian blur, it's actually possible to take that image back into Photoshop and do a reverse Gaussian blur. And this is something you can do now if you can figure out what the general parameters of the blur were. You can write a convolution kernel that will do the opposite of that and end up with the original image. It's really sort of freaky. Yeah, when you see it for the first time. And so what they've done now is basically, you know, so it used to be if you did the blur, you could do the reverse blur as long as you remember what the blur settings were at the time. And so there's been a lot of research over the you know, the last couple of years, last four or five years of mathematically computing those parameters so that you can automatically unblur an image. And that's what that's what this demo was showing. Um and so they've got a video up, which we'll link to, which is, you know, it's pretty impressive. I mean, you can't really see, it's hard to see on there, you know, because they're shooting a projector. Yeah, unfortunately, all the stuff out of Max is sort of surreptitiously recorded videos. Uh, none of is this... that true? They didn't do? Yeah, is I don't, it just I, that they I, haven't released them yet, or they weren't going to? Yeah, actually, I don't know if they're planning to release them, but they certainly haven't yet. And I think it's sort of like WWDC that it's NDA'd, and you're not supposed to be recording this stuff. Mm, sure. So everyone's trying to keep it on the DL, as they say. Interesting. But, it, you know, the idea is basically take a blurred image, and it can be blurred either through a Gaussian blur or, you know, the nice thing is... Yeah, more that, interestingly through... That focus is actually, a, you know, nearly identical to a Gaussian blur. Um, and so if you know, you know, if you model the lens, you can... Right, and that was what they were showing, I thought, was that they were able to profile Yeah, they were taking the... out of... Well, they were doing two things. They were doing out of focus, and they were doing motion blur. Right. And, and, so, and, and so not only are they able to sort of undo the blur, but they're able to profile the, the nature of the blur in order to do that automatically rather than having to know what the blur is. Exactly. So you drop in a blurry picture, you hit unblur, and it goes... And then you get a picture that's sharp. Right, and it's it's obviously and it's not an unsharp mask where it's just adding. No, it's not sharpening. It's actually right. 
yeah yeah it's it's i mean it's you know they were they were showing blurred text that they were able to recover readable text from and and you know that's not something you can do with a an on sharp mask um it it was just pretty impressive it's um obviously highly cpu intensive even in their their demo you know it was sitting there churning for quite a while to generate results um but sure. you know that's a that's a solved issue um making things go faster which is just right. wait um and yeah and if, and if you only have an autofocus picture that you have to deliver to a client right. waiting is a very viable option right now right um and but especially solving for motion blur would be pretty pretty cool yeah so you can start doing things like removing motion blur which is really the only unsolved part of retiming video at this point mm -hmm. so it's pretty easy well two things retiming video and stabilizing video right so right now when you stabilize video it does this weird thing where if there was enough motion to cause motion blur the image stays still but the blur it blurs in the the opposite direction of the the pr prior motion right which and can be really disconcerting yeah you'll see this sometimes i see this on um on broadcast tv and things sometimes where they've stabilized something um and you'll see that it's a weird effect where it sort of looks like the pixels are dancing a little bit or something it's almost like it was shot through like a plane of water yeah but the water moves in different directions it's not like fall it's not like a waterfall it's like a I don't know. It's like you laid down an LCD screen and then filled it full of water and then shot it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I did a, I did a bunch of, uh, uh, like, retouching of old archival film back in the day in the copy shake. And the original idea was to stabilize it, paint out all of the problems. You know, there was, like, where the emulsion got stuck to the you know, the shot before and stuff, so it would tear out a chunk of film from a frame. And so we'd paint it in from a couple frames before or after, things like that. And, you know, the original plan, you know, I stabilized the shots to make it easier, and I was just going to leave it like that. And it was so disconcerting, the motion blur, with those old, you know, 16-millimeter film, that I ended up doing a reverse stabilization at the end of it just to put the thing back in so you didn't... Sure, yeah. You know, and so what I did was I took out all the, I stabilized the shot and then took the track from the stabilize, cut it in half so it wasn't as noticeable, and yep. then stuck it back in. So at least the thing was moving in the direction of the blur. Because, you know, so if you could remove that, I think, you know, we'll finally have rock solid stabilization. Yeah. Well, and also just for still shots. Um, like, we just won't need tripods anymore. Yeah. For still shots, just being able to do, uh, you know, deal with motion stabilization, it will be, you know, pretty cool. Um, or deal with, with deal with motion blur. Um, so yeah, that was a that was a pretty cool uh, demo, and hopefully will will appear in Photoshop before too too long. Um, the other one, I didn't see this video until you linked it just um, recently. Uh, video meshes. Yeah. And so the idea behind this one was they, um, we've seen a few things like this now where basically you do some like pretty lightweight annotations to a scene. You know, you, you show it, a, you know, either a still or a piece of video and you say like, here's, basically you give it enough that it knows what the focal length of the, so you give it like a sight line and sort of where points are converging in the background, that sort of thing. And then sometimes you need to, you know, with this demo, you had to sort of like tell it where foreground objects were in the scene. Mm -hmm. And then it allowed you to move around within that scene some. So you could basically reposition the camera in a piece of moving video. It was really, really neat. I mean, it, it falls apart pretty quickly. Right. Like anything that's occluded, just it's sort of made up, right. which becomes problematic. But it's still, I mean, it's still a pretty amazing. Right, because feature. for you know, for example, in the demo, they were showing you you know pushing in on a shot, and rather than just sort of zooming up and cropping the edges, right. they were so actually it's not correcting a zoom, the it's perspective. Actually a parallax. Right. Push. And so, you know, stuff like that that you know can be used to subtly you know correct a shot 
um, in post-production, things like that become really valuable when you can get, you know, just a little bit of correction to avoid having to reshoot something. You're not trying to do a crazy, you know, that, that's where this kind of technology gets used. It's not in doing, you know, oh, we don't need a dolly anymore because we're just going to do it all in post, but it's, you know, oh, we did this shot and boy, it really looked better if we could be, you know, slightly more zoomed in and looking at just the left side of the frame. Well, it's really, I mean, that is something you can do with a zoom and not, you're not going to regret it. Yeah, you know, because people can't tell the pair. I mean, people aren't going to notice well, relative okay. positions of things. But if you want to do subtle, I mean, it's it's for doing subtle moves right. within an image. I mean, this is a much better version of the um, Ken Burns effect, right? Or the, the 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 popular thing, which is to, um, well, I mean, you know, effectively what people have done in the past, both with stills and also occasionally with videos, you know, roto out the different planes um and you know pick a few different planes row to them separately and then you know project them at different depths from the camera and move the camera like in after effects to create the same sort of effect but again right and this is a very automatic version of that and yeah this is yeah much nicer so what was that movie called the kids in the picture is that the one the kids stay in the picture yeah is that that's the one that did this first i don't know this roto effect i think so Oh, I vaguely know what you're referring to, but yeah. Um, I think it's the kid stays in the picture. I did see someone did a nice um, demo video. It must have been on, on Creative Cal or someone um, on doing this sort of thing in After Effects and then using the context-aware fill as well to, you know, fill in the areas you're cropping out, which which obviously, you know, again, for subtle moves is a solution, um, yeah. not necessarily a solution. And there was sort of, there's a convoluted workflow right now with After Effects and some tool by... Revision, um, R-E, Revision Effects, is that? It's a new place, right? I know who you mean. Yeah, Revision, I think. Yeah, yeah. Revision Effects, yeah. Capital. Um, they, yeah, they do, they have a tool for doing this in After Effects, but it's not nearly as automatic as this will be once they have it nailed down. Yeah. And so it's cool. I think, I mean, anytime we get more tools in our toolkit, yeah, definitely, definitely. And again, you know, continues the theme of Adobe buying cool thesis projects. Yeah. Hey, if they make it into products, I'm all for it. Yep. Um, okay, the one last uh, cool research project, which was not part of um, Adobe Max. This is just something someone put up on Vimeo. Yeah, it came out of SIGGRAPH. Mm, yes. That's right. Um, the idea was placing 3D. It's basically like a rendering tool chain for putting 3D images into pre-existing photographs. And it's pretty impressive when you see it. Um, the idea is you take a still photo of a scene and you're like, oh, you know what this needs? This needs a Stanford bunny on every table. And so, <laughs> so then you can just like drop them in in 3D and it what it's able to do is, you know, you ba- it's the same idea as the meshes where you go and you annotate the image, say, like, this is a light source, and you draw boxes around each of the, like, lights in the scene or the windows, and you say, this is the floor, and you sort of draw out the geometry of the scene in just simple sketching. And then it's able to basically recompute where all of the lighting is coming from as well as reflected colorimetry and such so that you drop something in even something clear or something you know like white and it will it'll get specular highlights from things from the existing lights it'll get you know bounce it'll reflect right. its it, light onto other objects in the scene and it'll cast shadows within the scene yeah it was it's really impressive it is um, i i was just al- watching the first couple are not very impressive but by the time they get to the end you're like wow that's uh i could see this being really useful i mean and, and you know where you know it looks like a fairly worthless thing to do like oh look you can put you know beach balls in all of your family photos but where this becomes incredibly powerful is when you can start doing it well one when you can get to the point where you're doing something like um, the auto-roto in 
After Effects. So right. you annotate this once for an entire video scene, and it's able to track those points through the entire image mm -hmm. or the video sequence. And then you can start doing things like embedding images in video, where you know, which is incredibly time intensive. Right, and also very common in you know feature production and in commercial production. Well, and if you can make this that idiot proof, right. and this sort of thing where you annotate the image once and then you can drop anything in later, like you you set the thing up and you have the table ready to go, and then like whoever, whichever soft drink company pays for that week's promotion, that's the soft drink that ends up on the table right. when it goes to air. Like, you know, and that becomes incredibly powerful for this sort of like. Well, and to not have to go in and actually, Product you know, placement. because right now, you know, what they do when they know they're going to be doing that is they have to also capture, you know, information about um, the light sources and capture, you know, the what spherical reflection. Right. They do a spherical reflection map and an HDR of the scene. And then if they want to be really good, they'll shoot a LIDAR pass. Right. So they have everything in 3D scan. And so, you know. The idea that, you know, in a couple of years, podcasters will be able to put product placements in their video <laughs> podcasts or like, you know, the guild or these other, you know, relatively low budget productions right. seems insane. And if we get this to the point where we, you know, it's not hard to imagine you do this processing and then pull out all the data you need to compute that in real time in something like Flash in the same way you can do AR toolkit right now. Yeah. Where you embed something, so all of that tracking data and everything is in your file that you send to the user, and then you, you know, you do like CPMs with, you know, Coke versus Pepsi bottles based on whoever's <laughs> willing to pay the most per view. Well, and you can also see. I mean, this is the sort of technology that you can see having applications throughout all sorts of imaging fields. Um, you know, real estate and previs architecture, medical imaging, just all sorts of things where you can start to see the value in you know, placing an object within some other photograph or scene and having it look like it was actually there. Um, yeah, you know who could use this a lot? Those eyeglass sites who stick glasses on your face? Yeah. God, those are the worst. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I would love to see a pair of glasses on me that, and it would, you could know your prescription and actually like warp your face right in the background. <laughs> oh, we should make that. That's a good sign. Yeah. That yeah, as someone with a, a negative ten prescription, yeah, that warp effect actually is meaningful. It's true, yeah. I can see your temples through your glasses. It's a little yeah, it's a little weird. Okay, um, have you thought of putting prisms in your glasses or something to correct for that? <laughs> I don't know if that works. <laughs> I don't either, but or like cant them sideways a little bit so it gets like I don't know. There must be some way to fix that. Yeah, lasers. No, oh, true. Can you correct your eyes? Um, I can get them to the point where I would wear thinner glasses. That seems like sort of a waste of everything. <laughs> it does seem like a, it, that's why I haven't done this. It's a lot of risk in order to still wear glasses. Yeah. Um, and a lot of money. So, I don't know. Someday they'll do it. Bad genetics. Thanks a lot, Darwin. Um, the last story I had linked was uh, the this from studio daily just to sort of round up of the year in film um or even the week in film i think they said it but it's really the year in film just looking at actual film-based film production and where things have gone this year and i i linked to this because i was really surprised by this article because i you know obviously we know that um film is is on the way out but i didn't realize how close we really are to the complete end of film a film film i mean um yeah. you know the 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 you know, one thing that was noted here is that obviously Kodak is right on the the edge um, of bankruptcy, and um, they're you know one of the the two manufacturers of actual film film, uh, leaving just Fuji basically. Um, but also that you know Panavision and Ari basically don't make film cameras anymore. You know, if you you know really beg Ari, they might send a guy down to put one together, but they aren't act actively constructing or, or doing any sort of um, R and D on film cameras anymore um which and they haven't for a few years which i was surprised about um yeah i guess i you know hadn't really thought about it for a while that 
you know, the, the degree to which digital is supplanting film in, in high-end production, um, obviously there's still a lot going on and there will be for a while. And one of the reasons that it isn't that exciting, that interesting that Ari and Panavision aren't making cameras is that of course these cameras last forever and um, they work pretty well. It's a pretty right. much- And a, it's a rental model. So they don't need to make more in order to satisfy demand because people don't buy them to put on their shelf. They rent them for the week they're mm-hmm. shooting. Right. I mean, the only, you know, the only atrophy is, you know, when they get sent off a cliff or something. Um, but- I guess, you know, it made me rethink the fact that I don't notice anymore what movies were shot on digital, which even a couple years ago, you know, it was pretty common for me to watch a movie and then say, yeah, that was shot on a Genesis or that was shot on, you know, Red or whatever and go on IMDb and say, oh, yeah, look, I was right. Um, right. And now I just I can't tell, honestly, um, you know, and there have been movies where I you know, I thought that it was digital and then looked and it was super 35 or I thought, well, it's a good thing they didn't shoot that on digital. And then I go and look and, oh, you know, it was shot on, you know, Alexa or whatever. It's EVX 100. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's just so many great options at the high end as we've talked about. And the, you know, the post workflow is so capable and the cinematography and the, you know, onset workflow to really get the most out of these cameras and cover up some of the, you know, most obvious issues, I think, um, have really evolved, you know? Yeah. I mean, the, the artists are getting good with them now. Yeah. That's the big change. Yeah. It's, uh, so I, I mean, you know, I'm sure just like vinyl still around motion picture film will be around. Um, and you know, in a, in, I was talking to a friend about this the other day, you know, I'm sure eventually we're going to get to the point where someone's going to release a movie that was, you know, was all shot on super 35 and all shot on a tripod and it'll be, you know, this sort of great defining moment of looking back at, Oh wow. That's how movies used to be. And isn't it revolutionary that he's done it the old fashioned way or she's done it the old fashioned way. Um, but for now, uh, I, you know, I think it's, it's gone. Film's dead. It's sad. It's not that sad. No, it's not really that sad. I don't really care. I've shot Super 16 a couple times in my life and uh, never found it particularly magical. Mostly it was just obnoxious to get the stuff back from the processor and realize that you didn't get what you needed. Yeah. And you spent a lot of money getting not what you needed. Yeah. So it's, yeah, I think it's a good thing. Good riddance film. Yeah. Don't care. Done. But it did go quickly. It, yeah, I just, I did not think it would go this quickly. I thought that at the high end, the, I mean, obviously, you know, there are the Soderberghs of the world who jumped on the video bandwagon right away, but I thought that more directors and producers would stick with film for longer, and that's not happened. Yeah. So. I guess that's, that's one thing. I mean, I guess that's one of the... Mm, not advantages or disadvantages, but just one of the products of sort of a a guild. You know, you, there's so much cross-pollination within the industry. You know, there's not like, it's not the old studio system where there, you know, where there could have been one company that is like, we're going to stick with film. You know, it's a bunch of, you know, everybody moves from project to project and they pick up these skill sets pretty quickly and they play with, you know, you're on one movie and you're, you know, your video and it, doesn't work that well and then you're on another one and it's video and you're like oh this was better yeah and you know the sort of the way that when you're you know when you're sort of loosely coupled to a you know a ton of projects every year how you could you know sort of pick that stuff up pretty quickly and how it spreads across everybody involved in all these disparate projects yeah which is good they should unionize the VFX people. Yeah. Cool. So yeah, I think that that covers things for this week, right? We're gonna do our chatter. Um. Yeah. For sure. Next week we'll dive into a, a bigger topic. Um. Next week we'll podcast. Let's promise that. Let's just do that. We will podcast, and we will podcast on a topic related to the field we are interested in. How about yes. that? Yes. We can hold video. Those yeah. Or software. Which field yeah. are we interested in? Are we software people who make get, video software or are we video people who make software? Mm, I don't know. I can't remember. 
I don't even know anymore. Yeah, me neither. What are you chattering about, Mike? So I found this strange company called Innovega Inc. And what the hell is this? So this, um, what's his name? Um, the guy from Aardvark? What's that? From ID? Id Software? John yeah, Carmack? Like a, yeah, Carmack posted this on Twitter. Oh, yeah, from his uh, Armadillo Aerospace, I think is what you're thinking. Yeah, of. he's looking at uh, making heads-up displays, I think, for, for software, for games. But, um, you know, one of the problems with heads-up displays is that you end up having these tiny little screens close up to your eyeballs, and your eye has to focus on them. And so one of the, you know, what they've done in the past is put lenses between the two that kind of muck with your field of vision such that they look like really big TVs far away and you don't have to, you know, contract your your eyeball to a point where it like hurts after a couple of minutes focusing on this thing up close. Right. Um, you know, because the human eye isn't, I mean, when you are focusing up close, your eyeballs are usually canted in a lot. It's hard to look out where your eyes are basically running parallel. Your your sight lines are running parallel, but yet they're still focused really close up. Right. It just gives you headaches. And so what this company has done is they make a pair of glasses with little screens in them, and then they make contacts <laughs> that you put in your eyeballs, which correct for this it's the same kind of idea but what what's what's novel about this is it actually somehow only affects the so they so what they're claiming they can do is put these little screens right up close and only fill part of your vision and then the lens makes it easy to focus on that but the things that you're looking out into real space at can still be in focus too okay how does that I, work? The only thing I can think of is that they're doing some sort of polarization. Yeah, that's all I can think of too. And focusing polarized light only. I feel like there would be some side effects. I'm sure there are side effects to this, but just the fact that it's possible. Yeah. And at least possible to make a website about. Yeah. Um, seems crazy. Yeah, I. Uh, I feel like <laughs> I I have trouble seeing this getting widespread adoption. No, sticking like, contacts hey, in let's your play, eyes. Hey, let's play Rage 2. Hold on, let me go put the contacts in. Not to mention that this will only work. Either you have, well, one, contacts have to be fitted. And two, they would have to, if you wear contacts, they would have to also be prescription. Be prescription as well, which means the economy, like the scale on making these things, they're going to have to like teach contact makers how to make these. Yeah, because there's no way they can make they can start doing prescription contact. I mean, I guess they can, but they'd have to be glass because there's no way you're gonna buy disposable. Yeah, I don't know. It just seems like a very strange solution to this problem. But it seems like it'd be. I give them credit to, for yeah, modify our eyes. Yeah, I have no idea, but it uh, it just seems so far out there that I wanted to. Uh, yeah, well, have everybody look at it because it right. seems crazy. Yeah, I. Uh, <laughs> this seems like one of those things that, uh, if you bookmark this page and check back in two years, you'll It'll get still a, be copied by twenty ten. Oh, I, I, I was going to go with you'll get a uh, GoDaddy landing page or something, but. Uh, oh, really? Mm, we'll see. Oh wait, they oh. have a business model link. Yeah, no, they're like. I mean, I think Carmack had one. Okay. Like, I think he got one to play with. Maybe I'm wrong on that. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Micro-optical electromechanical systems. They're a fabulous manufacturer. Cool. So, so am I. Existing contact lens manufacturers. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe it'll work. Um, hey. There was a company that makes glasses for this, but they're like glasses for working at your computer. Right, yeah. They help make it easier to focus up close. Yeah. So I don't know. It seems like it's probably a similar idea. Um, hmm, you know, Gunner, I think, is the glass company. But 
I don't know. Thought I was curious. Cool. Um, I was just going to shout out a show that the BBC BBC Two did uh, called City Beneath the Waves um, because I'm a bit of a hobby archaeology buff and uh, it's just a cool cool show um, about the process. <laughs> How much of that has to do with the fact that you watch Star Trek The Next Generation? Do you just what imagine yourself a Captain Picard? Is that what this is? He was a hobby archaeologist? Yeah. I don't remember oh, that. You're the worst Trekkie ever. Hey man, I subscribed to an archaeology magazine that makes me an archaeologist, and I took a couple classes. <laughs> cool. So the the show was about um, the process that um, a group used to reconstruct a sunken city um, off the coast of Greece, where they actually um, did a bunch of you know three D modeling and laser scanning to um, first document what was underwater and then from that data and you know a lot of other research data basically reconstruct the city um in cgi uh, but it's a pretty cool process that they went through um and and a, you know a pretty amazing result in terms of the model they were able to build um and it's you know one of these great things in terms of modern archaeology and that you know as these types of processes um improve you're able to you know get more data faster and then do more of the um, analysis back in the lab, which is obviously a lot cheaper than being on site. Um, you know, just sort of capturing all the possible data you can capture when you're on, on location um, quickly and automatically, and then being able to, you know, dig into it in different ways. So, uh, you know, because when you when you look at a lot of these sites, um, you know, most of the you know big archaeological sites in the world have field seasons that are only a week or a couple of weeks long. Um, and so these, these research projects and these digs get stretched out over, you know, years and years and decades. Um, and so technology like this, that allows them to, to do a lot of data acquisition in a short period of time and then, you know, focus their time when they're offsite is pretty cool. Yeah. Cool. So that's it for this week. And we promise to be back next week. And if not, we're really sorry. <laughs> We promise to do it unless we don't. We will give you a full refund on your time. Mm, fair enough. Uh, talk to you next week.